In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been staff of reed to the house of Israel. The gospel lesson is from Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, you'll see the note in your order. Uh, we're going to continue this sermon series that we've been doing on the idea of rest and joy, especially looking at the Sabbath. And as part of this, I've mentioned a couple times in sermons just how interesting it is that it's not just uh, Christians or people of faith who are maybe thinking about this idea of rest, but it's something that's part of our, our general culture. As scholars are writing or journalists are exploring 
why many of us, or most of us, feel overwhelmed or busy with our schedules and demands. And so I want to start again by looking at a, a few voices of people who are talking about the experience of what it is to work or keep our schedules and our culture. One author writes, Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. It's good news, right? <laughs> Start with the good news. This, this is not, I should say, this is not what most social scientists expected in the 21st century. There's a person who gathers different views on what work would be like in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. Predictions envisioned a 15-hour work week in the 21st century, you know, five-day weekends. The real questions that humans will face in the future will be what to do with all of your leisure. Maybe that's your experience. Another prediction said that work will, be, will become easier, therefore our identities will become defined more by our hobbies or by our relationships. More and more we'll look not to work, but to leisure in relationship for satisfaction and meaning. Derek Thompson is an author who's written quite a bit about work, and last year he wrote an article in saying, these post-work predictions weren't entirely wrong. In some areas or categories, Americans work less than they used to and have access to convenience that creates new possibilities for leisure. But most Americans work more now than they did decades ago. And many are reared from their teenage years to make their passion their career. He writes these in an article titled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. For many, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising transcendence and community, but it's failing to deliver. He goes on to say that no one expected in the 21st century that work would evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. One last thing, a woman named Ann Peterson writes then how millennials became the burnout generation. She says something similar. We need to think our employment reflects well on our parents, that it's impressive to our peers, that the, it's world-changing, and that it deeply fulfills us. Therefore, career achievement is the very thing many of us are running towards seeking meaning or telling us that we matter. And I don't know how those words strike you or what, how that makes you think, or whether you can resonate with parts or all of those things. But I want us to reflect, again, on what our culture is saying or what we're experiencing. And I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with work or with responsibilities, nothing wrong with working hard or striving for new opportunities or taking care of what God has given you and your family or your home. God invites us with joy to use our gifts and to see the fruitfulness of our lives. But many of us, and I say maybe most of us, know the busyness or the pressures of this current society, whether it's at home and family, whether it's with classes and tests and applications, or whether it's with work and career, and that we know that those pressures can bring forth burnout or exhaustion or lead us to even wonder, what is the point? What's the point of all this? And so no matter where we are in our experiences, it's worth us paying attention to the different things happening in us and around us. And while all of our situations are different, for us to ask, what would it be like to experience rest, to experience a sense of joy? And so we've been asking that question through the concept of the Sabbath, the scriptural concept of the Sabbath. The Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, 
which means to rest or to cease. And Scripture says that this practice of Sabbath, this setting aside a day of rest in the midst of the week, one day out of seven, is intended as a gift from God for our refreshment, for our renewal, not another duty to add, but our benefit. And so we've been exploring this idea of Sabbath through the Scripture story. We looked at creation and the fall and of Israel and God's law. We looked at Jesus last week, and this morning we'll look at the church. And what I want us to consider this morning is that rest and worship are linked together. The Scripture sees these things together, that our worship is connected to the experience of rest. Where we direct ourselves for answers, where we direct ourselves for meaning, where we get the sense of who we are or what things matter, that worship forms how we think of our time and our work. So part of that, we can even ask, what is the church? What is the church? And if you're like me, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking about the church as our activities that we do. The church is those who act with justice or mercy. The church are those who teach about Jesus, those who do what is good or think about what is ethical or righteous. And those things are important, we could go on. But I want us to hear that the church is not our activities. Those are the fruit that come out, the center church, we are those who rest in Christ, those who rest in the resurrection of Christ. And if we see that, that begins to, out of that worship, begins to help us think differently about ourselves and our time. So we're going to look at a passage from Colossians 1 that speaks about the greatness of Christ and that Paul invites us to worship Christ and to see who Christ is. So this is in your order of worship, Colossians 1, verse 9 through 23. You can follow along in your order there or in your Bible or just listen as I read. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that it would speak to us wherever we are today, whatever questions or worries or thoughts that we have, whatever circumstances, and that, Lord, by your spirit, you'd help us to hear and receive and respond in faith, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, we're going to focus primarily on the, the middle section of in your order of worship. And I want us to have the sermon be around two questions. If question one is, is, who or what do we worship? Who do we worship is the first question. And the second one is, how does that worship form us? How does that worship form us? So let's start with the first one. Who or what do we worship? One more voice to to read from someone writing about work. It's a name, Oren Cass. He wrote a book called The Once and Future Worker. And he has in this book, that's not about religion at all, he has a, saying, a, a line that I think is interesting. He says, our desks, our desks were never meant to be our altars. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. Now he's talking about work and career and employment. But I think we can expand this out beyond just getting a paycheck. He's inviting us in that that quick statement to think where it is that we direct what Christians would call our worship, where we direct ourselves. And so we can expand it out to think about not just employment or career, but our family and home responsibilities, our school and our seeking to achieve. You and I were told that we are what we produce, that our busyness and our accomplishments affirm who we are and, and that we matter. But the question of what we worship is a chance for us to say, but our work and our desk, our family and our home, our, our schools are not made to be our altars, not to be our worship. Paul writing to a young church in the midst of many different voices, many different demands in the Greco-Roman world, invites them to direct themselves the question of who they are and, and what they mean and how they think of time in their lives. He directs them to Jesus. There is a poem at the center of our passage, a poem that exalts Jesus, and it has two verses, and they invite us to see Jesus through the category of the Creator and the Redeemer. Now, these aren't just random categories, but these are the fundamental categories of the Lord, the one who's worthy of worship, the one who made you and the one who has rescued you from your sin or claimed you in the midst of all the other things that would seek to hold you. And Paul, inviting the church, inviting you and I, tells us to bring ourselves to Jesus. And in two verses, this poem invites us to the exalted Christ. The first verse is that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Like I said, it's that middle section in your order of worship. If we ask, who is God, or where do I direct myself to know who God is like, we're told to look at Jesus. Jesus is identified with God himself, for by him all things were made in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. He's the firstborn of creation, meaning that all things that exist come through him. 
He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This language is the language that we have in Genesis of creation. The call to stop and to rest, to acknowledge that your life is a gift, that you've been placed in the world, the gift of creation, and that all powers, all things of beauty, all life owes its existence to the Creator. That framework, that understanding is now set on the person of Jesus. Your life, its value. Your life, its beauty and its worth rests not in your productivity nor your ability to achieve beyond what the person next to you can do. Rather, it's a gift through Jesus, the one who has made God known. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. It leads then to the second verse of the poem. He is the head of the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We know that the Christian story that the created order, the fruitful world, is broken due to human sin, and that this has brought to each one of us and to all of our neighbors the pain of death and separation with God, separation with ourselves and with others and with the created world. But here we're reminded in this poem of worship that God did not leave us in our sin and misery. Rather, God's acted, God moved in Jesus into our sin and death, bearing the brokenness And through the resurrection, his rebirth from the dead, he is the victor over all that would seek to hold us and bind us. See the language here? He is the firstborn, not just of creation at the beginning, he is the firstborn of all those who would come forth through the sin and misery of this world. His victory is not just for him. He's bringing forth a people, the church. Again, who are we? We are not the those who have a list of activities that we can accomplish, but the church are those who have been brought forth through the resurrection of Christ, and He is the firstborn, the beginning of a people who are redeemed. And so we worship. We begin to understand ourselves and our meaning and even time in the person of Christ because He is the firstborn of all creation and He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the source of all creation, and He is the source of new creation. He is the beginning, and He is the new beginning for you and for me. This is the good news. And we want to think about rest, or think about who we are, or our identities. Paul here is inviting us beyond our tasks or accomplishments to Christ Himself. I wonder, do you, do you ever ask or wonder why we worship on Sundays? It's, it's not just because there's no classes here at Waters on Sundays. Why do we worship on Sundays? You know, many, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, many cultures or societies have creation stories. The Jewish creation story is unique, though, in many ways, and one of the ways it's unique is it includes rest. That God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, God rested. And so the idea that there would be rest, that there would be joy, apart from productivity, is inherent in God's creation from the beginning. And Scripture goes through, we heard this passage read from Ezekiel, in which God is reminding the people that He brought them out of Egypt, that He rescued them. 
The language of rest not only attaches to creation, but it attaches to God acting to redeem his people. Those categories, again, of creator and redeemer. Rest is inviting us to remember who we are, the created, created by God and rescued by God. The first Sabbath, it was a Sabbath that our Jewish neighbors keep, our Jewish friends keep. It's from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. The day of rest that God took, the seventh day, was Saturday. But as the earliest church Christians began to worship, and as the church began to form, they worshiped not on Saturday, but on Sunday. And they did this because Sunday was the day of resurrection. Sunday was the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. Sunday was the day they encountered the risen Lord. And so they began to worship and gather in his name on Sundays. And the day of rest transitioned from Saturday, the seventh day, to Sunday. And that, the, the promise and the hope of rest that God created me and that God redeemed me was set firmly on the person of Jesus, and specifically that his resurrection. Because in the resurrection, Jesus went into your sin, into your death, and came forth victorious. And so the church, who are we? We are those who rest in the resurrection of Jesus. Those who entrust themselves not to their work or to their achievement, but to Jesus and his work. And we, I want to be real clear about this. The church is not those, we're not those who have figured things out. Those who are stronger than others or better at answering life's questions than our neighbors. When we gather for worship and rest, we gather in communion with the risen Christ, the one who has made us and redeemed us. And we gather as part of our, his body with fellow believers, remembering that we were made not just to be reconciled to God, but to one another. And so when we gather here on Sundays, we do so on the day of resurrection, remembering Christ's victory for us and what that might mean for who we are. It's a festival, a day of freedom, not defined by our work or accomplishments, but by God and God's work for us. And that's why the church, the worship is open for anyone, not just a select few or a select class, but all are invited to come and find rest in what God has done. So who do we worship? If we want to think about rest and think about time, we have to begin by asking the question of who it is that we direct ourselves to to know who we are, the one whose words speak to us about meaning. And the second question that I want us to look at this morning is not just who we worship, but how our worship forms us. One of the things we see through Scripture, right, is that what we worship, we begin to be like what we worship. It begins to change us and form us around its image. And that's part of why God tells us not to worship idols, because we will become like them. So I want to dwell for a moment on the significance of Jesus as the beginning, the new beginning. The letter in Col Paul writes to the church in Colossae mentions a number of times this language of powers and authorities and rulers that's mentioned in our passage. And these are powers or forces that are at work in the world, at work in this broken world to seek their own ends, and to use us even towards those ends. Now, in the ancient world, these forces and powers received names. 
All sorts of names for gods or different powers at work in the world. We might not think much of such ideas. We might smile even at the silliness of the past. But if we listen closely, even to ourselves, we might notice that we speak of powers and forces at work today as well. Talk about large and personal forces or pressures, economic, political, or social forces that we can't seem to get our hands around or can't stop from impacting how things are to bring an influence beyond our control or our ideas. I recently read an article in The Atlantic by a woman named Peggy Orenstein titled, What It Means to Be a Man. Now, that's an article we have to talk about. There's a lot of good things in there. We can talk about that another time. But I want to point out one part of that, one sentence. She says, I spent two years talking with boys across America, more than 100 of them, between 16 and 21 years old, about masculinity, sex, and love. And then she says, and about the forces, seen and unseen, that shape them. Now, I read that, I imagine, because you know what she means. The forces, seen and unseen, that shape them. There are forces at work in our life, in our city, in our world, that bring forth and disrupt peace that stop good ideas, that stop justice, that leave the poor and vulnerable exposed, that allow corruption to fester. There are forces and powers bigger than the sum of our human powers or ideas. A set of situations that nobody seems to want, but no one knows what to do with. And why am I telling you all these things? (laughs) Because when we hear God talk about the powers and the rulers and the authorities, it's possible that you and I could just think about the past and about how people in that day thought about certain gods. But what I'm inviting us to see in humility is that forces are still at work in our lives, things that we cannot see. And that some of them have to do with how we think of our work and our schedules and our time. That we know in our bones, because we know because it's in the air that we breathe, that our meaning comes by doing that our security and significance is tied to what we can accomplish. That we know that if we put in a certain amount of time and effort in, that we should be able to rise to the top and bring about certain luxuries or certain benefits for ourselves. That there are benefits to working with the forces and powers. Benefits to doing what you're supposed to do, being productive, meeting criteria for being efficient, And that we all feel at times this call to pull the chain of accomplishment, whether it's through school or through applications, through work, through family, that these things that we need to meet and rise above. The pagan world asked the question, how can I control the forces? How can I work with them? How can I be on the right side of them? And their answer was to make an exchange. To make an exchange. Maybe we could be on the right side of the forces if we make sacrifice of certain animals, if we honor these forces with a building or with a battle. How do we deal with the forces that press upon us? How do we get on the right side of them? Today we use different language, but we say something similar. If you work hard, if you get the right education, if you identify with the right groups, if you rise above or show your ability and accomplishments, 
then you will benefit from the social or economic forces at work in our city. You'll be on the right side of them. But we forget that when powers take over, when we give in to them, human beings get crushed. When we accept the pressures and evaluations that we are the sum of our work or our ability to handle responsibilities or our achievement in the face of whatever comes our way, we walk in a way that destroys us or leads us to disregard others. And so that's why we need to hear what this letter is telling us. The good news is that these powers and forces and authorities that are at work pressing us and telling us who we are, we hear in the Scriptures that God has rescued you from the powers of darkness, has transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. By the cross and the resurrection, the hostile powers that held us captive are emptied of their vitality and their claim upon us. See, Jesus doesn't just another force or another power. Jesus gives Himself for us. He doesn't use us up, but gives his body to release us, that we may no longer be subject to the chain of accomplishments, no longer subject to the evaluations of the world around us, but that we may be known as the one that has been rescued by Christ and his victory over all forces and powers, that we may be called his people. There's a poet named William Butler Yeats who has a poem called Easter 1916. It's a complicated poem, but it's a poem that's written to celebrate some events that happened in Ireland, especially in response to persecution that was coming upon the Irish people. And in this poem, he gives an image of there being a stream of water, this waterway that's moving. He calls it the living stream, that it's the forces and pressures that are upon the world, how history is unfolding. And he imagines this great stone, he calls it the living stone, the enchanted stone, being thrown down onto the waters such that the waters can never flow in the same way again. The water being broken up, a new path having to be made. And the way that the church talks about the resurrection of Jesus, the way that God invites us to the resurrection is it's like that great enchanted stone that breaks up all the ways and the forces and pressures that are in our life, telling you who you are and what you have to do to matter, telling you that you have not measured up and that you never will. In the midst of that stream, in the midst of that saying that your life and your future rests upon this test or this application, the risen Christ breaks apart that flow and sets it in a new course. And therefore, he is the new beginning. And when we gather here each Sunday to worship Jesus and to rest in him and to rejoice in what he's done, it is a chance to begin each week anew with a subversive message that we are not what we produce. We're not the sum of how much we can work or how good our job is or how much we can handle our responsibilities within our family or in our home, but that we are the children of God who rests in God's action for us. See, the Sabbath is not just a pause, but it's an occasion for you and me to reimagine our social lives, how we see ourselves and others. Instead of going down with the forces of coercion or competition or self-reliance, to imagine compassionate connection 
to our brothers and sisters. An opportunity to see oneself in the hands of God. Creating the space and possibility for care of the, the person who God brings into your life. No longer rivals or tasks or interruptions, but brothers or sisters or neighbors. Jesus is the beginning. And each Sunday we're called with this diversive call that we can be free. Start anew. Be free. That you are one who has been redeemed in Christ. Here is the truth Right? We will never finish all that's asked of us. We'll never complete all that we have to do. There'll always be some things that we fall short of. We will never accomplish everything that the chain of accomplishments is set before us, but this is okay because it is not the source of who I am, the source of my future, or even how I understand my neighbor or my schedule. Because our lives and our futures do not rest in our productivity or achievement or accomplishment, but in the grace of God for us. See, we're invited right now to rest and to remember these words of Christ that free us. That He is not only the firstborn of creation, but the firstborn of the dead. And that He has redeemed you as His church. That you don't have to be in control because the power of God is at work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for who You are. And Lord, we thank you for this words that you give us about the greatness of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you'd lift our eyes to see you, and that in doing so, that you set us free from that which enslaves us, and that would move us in new ways to see one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.